0: Hello everybody, this is Jennifer Matarese, and before we proceed today, a little bit of housekeeping. A quick reminder that if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so per episode through Patreon or with a one-time donation through PayPal, both of which are linked through the podcast's Facebook page. You can also follow news about the podcast through Facebook at Disaster Area Podcast, on Twitter at Disaster Area Pod, and on Instagram at Disaster Area Pod. Speaking of Patreon, I am having a giveaway on Patreon of five books on historical disasters – A Night to Remember, Dark Tide, Hiroshima, The Circus Fire, and Isaac's Storm. I will choose from among all Patreon supporters on March 10th to decide who will receive the books. They're some of my favorite books on disasters, and whoever receives them should enjoy them a lot. Next, thanks go out to Sean and Destrato, who both chose the subject for this episode as part of the Kickstarter campaign. I didn't know why I hadn't done this one before, and then I started doing all the research. There was a lot to go through, so I apologize for taking so long to record this episode. I also preemptively apologize for any Norwegian words or names I might mispronounce. And finally, as per usual with episodes regarding mass shootings, I will be using the shooter's name as little as possible. With all that taken care of, thank you so much for listening, guys, and welcome to Disaster Area. (music) Episode 32, the 2011 Norway attacks, July 22nd, 2011, 77 deceased. 319 injured. One person can make a difference. We hear this all the time. Normally, it's in regards to one person doing very good things. Tending to the sick, helping the poor, protecting the weak. We rarely hear it in relation to people doing something horrific. But that doesn't mean we don't know one person can make a difference in the worst way. I've spoken about it before on this podcast. David Duckenfield at Hillsboro, Andrew Kehoe in Bath, Michigan, David Burke on Pacific Southwest, Flight 1771. And those of us who are interested in true crime know that fact well. We see it on investigation discovery shows, hear about it on podcasts like My Favorite Murder or True Crime Garage, and read about it in books like Helter Skelter. One person can do so much. In the case of one Norwegian man in 2011, one man horrified an entire nation and became the international face of right-wing terrorism. Anders Bering Breivik was born February 13, 1979 to Vencha Bering and Jens Breivik. Vencha was a nurse who had a daughter from a previous relationship, while Jens worked as a diplomat for the Norwegian embassy. The marriage was doomed from the start. Soon after his birth, the Braviks moved to London for Jens's work, and Vencha found herself in a good social position, but separated from everything she knew. Within a year, Vencha was back in Oslo with the baby, and the pair were divorced. His mother managed to maintain custody of her son, even though Jens fought to obtain custody of the boy, but the situation was far from ideal. Vencha was cruel to her son. She smacked him around, told him she wished he was dead. Once she asked the husband in a couple caring for her son as part of a weekend program if, since the boy had no male role model, the husband would show the boy his penis. A report on the family written by Norway's Center for Youth and Child Psychiatry expressed serious concerns that exhibited signs of borderline personality and depression. The report wasn't the only source to raise questions of problems at home. Friends of the kids would tell their parents that they just didn't eat dinner in the Bering Home. Occasionally, the boy could escape through visits with his father. Jens remarried to another diplomat and moved to Paris, and his son regularly visited him there. It was more than likely a step up from the tumultuous goings-on back in the Bering Home in the west end of Oslo. Like many teens, the boy found an outlet for any rebellious feelings he might have had soon enough. That outlet was graffiti art. And from the sound of it he took it much more seriously than any of his other teenage friends. He planned ahead, knowing exactly when to leave his home to go tag local buildings and structures, and when the cars which would wash away any graffiti would pass by. He knew how not to get caught. One friend described him as taking his tagging plans like a military operation. That's not to say he never got caught, though. When he was 15, he was caught in Oslo, on Christmas Eve, carrying 43 spray cans. Another time, he snuck off to Denmark without telling his mother where he was going to go spray graffiti art. Eventually, he would end up with a 3,000 kroner fine, about $358 American. After this point, Jens Breivik and his son no longer spoke. Wenche would claim Jens was the one who cut off all contact. Jens, however, claimed his son stopped speaking to him. Either way, the young man's relationship with his father, seemingly the more stable of his parents, abruptly ended at this moment. The relationship was strained even before then. His stepmother Tova, Jens' wife for a time, encouraged him to connect with the boy and his other half-siblings from Jens' first marriage but Jens was always a distant father and once his marriage to tova dissolved so it seems did his relationship with his son his son quit high school soon after his uh, soon before excuse me his final exams when vetted for conscription in the norwegian army he ended up deemed unfit for service he soon began his life as an entrepreneur sometimes unsuccessful sometimes better off He lost shares worth about 2 million kroner in the stock market when he was only 19. But he also sold fake diplomas over the internet and made around $600,000 American. There were other business opportunities, some successful, some not, but those were two of the major ones. He took an exceptional amount of care in his appearance as well. He spoke about how you should put on makeup before you got your photo taken even if you're a man. He thought about becoming a model, and supposedly got plastic surgery on his forehead, chin, and nose to improve his chances with women. He worked out to get his body in shape, although not without the help of the same anabolic steroids he'd been using since he was a teenager. He worried about his receding hairline. He joked about being metrosexual. But the whole time he seemed to blame his mother for all of that, saying that she had feminized him. At the age of 27, he moved back home with his mother because a business of his had failed. Or so he told his mother. He wore a face mask in their shared apartment because he claimed to be afraid of bugs. He stayed inside his room all the time, watching TV, playing video games. He barely left. Along the way, he discovered that in internet forums, he could find like-minded people who felt the same way he did about immigrants and Muslims, that they were dangerous, and they needed to be stopped one way or another. By 2010, a quarter of the population of Norway was immigrants. In his neighborhood, a rich, mostly white area in the west end of Oslo, he wouldn't have encountered most of this population on a daily basis, especially considering how rarely he left the apartment. It didn't, however, stop him from allowing his rage to boil over when it came to their mere existence in his homeland. Soon, he started writing a document which would outline his extremist views, a document teeming with hate, plotting out nightmares, and badly in need of an editor. The manifesto would continue onward for three books and 1,500 pages. It was called 2083, a European Declaration for Independence. The manifesto spoke positively about right-wing Islamophobic groups in other countries, the English Defense League in the United Kingdom, for example. It plagiarized entire sections of the Unabomber manifesto with certain phrases found and replaced throughout those sections. Like for example, replacing the phrase black people with Muslims. It quoted everyone from Mahatma Gandhi and Thomas Jefferson to right-wing bloggers Pamela Geller and Fjord Mann, along with Jeremy Clarkson's Sunday Times column for some reason. It spoke well of the Crusades and the Tea Party movement in America. In the manifesto, he self-identified as a cultural Christian, not a religious Christian, a fascist and a neo-nationalist. The manifesto detailed a plan to commit a heinous act, in four parts. First, he would obtain false credentials so he could get 140,000 euros to fund what he had in mind. In the second step, he would spend a year purchasing the equipment he needed to carry the act out. In the third step, he would assemble the most complex part of his plan, the bomb. Finally, he would commit this act, to which he said, quote, Good luck and give them hell. Instead of his birth name, he signed it as Andrew Berwick, a more anglicized version of his own name. In the manifesto, he says he is a 32-year-old former bank clerk and millionaire entrepreneur. Well, at least he got his age right. In late August of 2010, he traveled to Prague in the Czech Republic with one goal in mind. In preparation for the trip, he hollowed out the rear seats of his Hyundai Atos planning to smuggle as much as he could back to Norway. To give himself an alibi, he printed up a prospectus for a mineral extraction business, just in case people suspected him of anything nefarious. He arrived in the city with a very specific shopping list. An AK-47 or something quite like it, a Glock pistol, hand grenades, a rocket-propelled grenade. The first two were definites. The latter two on the list would just be a bonus. He also brought some fake police badges with him, printed especially for the police uniform he bought illegally on the internet. He wouldn't use them in Prague, but they would come in handy later on. However, Prague was awash, and he would go home empty-handed. Later, he would say Prague was, quote, nothing like the BBC reported. Not one of the best places in Europe to buy illegal drugs and guns, as he believed, and that he felt safer in Prague than in Oslo. After Prague, his plans to arm up illegally seemed a bit too much trouble. Better to just go the easiest way and do it legally in Norway. He already had two guns, a Beninova 12-gauge pump-action shotgun and a three hundred eight bolt bolt-action rifle, but that wasn't enough. He had a cleaning record and a hunting license, and he'd already owned his two guns for seven years. There was no reason he should have any problem getting any more in Norway, which restricted its guns to hunters and sports shooters, designations which covered a notable percentage of Norwegians. Once he got back to Norway with his unsuccess- from his unsuccessful trip to Prague, he got a permit through legal channels for a .223 caliber Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic carbine. He said he planned to use it for deer hunting. He would later buy the weapon for 1,400 euros or $2,000 American. Obtaining the pistol was harder to get the pistol. He would need to establish regular attendance at a sports shooting club. So from November of 2010 to January of 2011, he attended 15 training sessions at the Oslo pistol club. It worked. His application to buy a Glock was approved. With the weapons bought, he did some more shopping, buying 10 through 30 round magazines for the rifle from an American supplier and six pistol magazines in Norway. Among the ammo he bought were hollow point bullets. He also modified dum-dum bullets and injected his ammo with pure liquid nicotine to inflict the most pain to anyone he might shoot. He also practiced more going to firing ranges, taking trips to countries with more lax gun laws, playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 while using an in-game holographic sight. Now he had guns, but he also needed a little something else. An online search yielded the recipe he needed. Fertilizer, chemicals, a car, and a lot of patience. In May of 2009, he had created a company called Bravik Geopharm. It would cultivate vegetables, melons, roots, tubers, at least according to him. But an agricultural company opened doors and allowed for access to all sorts of things, like, say, fertilizer, an innocuous item for a farmer, but an ingredient for more explosive products in the wrong hands. In December of 2010, he entered a shop in Poland and spent 10 euros on a little container containing 300 grams of sodium nitrate. At first, buying the chemicals put his name on the watch list of Global Shield, an international company which tracked the purchases of dangerous chemicals. Global Shield then sent a list of 41 names on the watch list to the PST, Norway's police intelligence. However, they did nothing. The person who handled cases at the PST went on leave shortly after receiving the list and did not interview Bravik. In March, he would receive another 100 grams of other chemicals from an internet shop based in Rocklaw. In May, he began to build the explosive components of the first step in his grand plan. In April of 2011, he moved from Oslo to Volstua farm in Omot, a little out-of-the-way place where his agricultural business would flourish, if it were actually doing anything agricultural at all. The next month, six tons of fertilizer arrived at the farm in Omot, three tons of ammonium nitrate and three tons of calcium ammonium nitrate. All of this, the guns, the chemicals and fertilizer, everything would end up costing him 317,000 euros total. On July 27, excuse me, on July 21st, 2011, he took a cab from the train station to the farm after a recon mission in Oslo. The taxi driver noticed the van in the driveway. Its rear end low to the ground as though weighted down with something very heavy. The next day was gray and rainy. But at the farmhouse, things were busy. At 10am, he posted a new video to his YouTube channel, Bashing Muslims. Next, he posted a bit of a fashion slideshow. Him in a Knights Templar outfit, him in a Freemason suit, him in a white biological warfare suit, and a simple posed photo of him in a suit, looking a little bit like a model. He next sent out a mass email to 1,003 people throughout Europe whom he assumed thought as he did. Attached to the email was the manifesto he'd been writing. He soon left to drive the white Volkswagen Crafter van containing its deadly contents to Oslo, a ride which took two and a half hours. Before he left, he changed in the back of the van into something which could pass for a police outfit, a black compression top which looked somewhat like a wetsuit, black pants, a bulletproof vest, big black boots. He attached the holster to the pistol he'd been calling Mjolnir to his thigh. Then he added a black plastic police insignia to his sleeves for a final touch. When he arrived in the bustling city, he drove to Regering Svartalet, the executive government section, and at 3.16 p.m. parked the van on the street just outside of the Eichblock building on the one-way Grubergata. The building held several important government offices, in particular the office of the Prime Minister, Jens Stoltenberg. The van sat mere meters from the façade of the building. Anyone standing inside the building from 15 floors above it might have had to stand close to their own window, head tilted with their forehead nearly touching the glass, just so they could see it. It was a place many an authority had expressed safety concerns about in the three years since, in the years since 9/11. The road passing the building was open, and the only thing keeping back vehicles was a flimsy chain, which you could simply drive around. For years, people had tried to close the street to building traffic. They had yet to do so. The driver made sure the timer inside the van was set, then walked to nearby Hammersburg Torrey, where he was able to depart the scene in a silver van he had parked there earlier, specifically for his escape. A witness noticed him driving the wrong direction down a one-way street in the car and took the license plate number down just in case. A security guard in the office building, meanwhile, searched camera footage to see if he could find the person who had parked the van in the front of the building. It didn't belong there, and they needed to contact the driver to move it immediately. As he zoomed into the image of the van on his monitor to take down the license plate, at 3.26, the bomb exploded. The blast shattered windows for half a mile and sent shrapnel flying everywhere. A white-gray cloud of dust filled the streets. The tower block containing the Prime Minister's offices rocked in the explosion. A fire started in the Department of Oil and Energy, be- energy nearby. Video taken by survivor Johann Tanberg in the aftermath shows an incredible level of destruction, reminiscent of the streets of New York on 9-11. One man hurrying past the van at precisely the right moment was pl- practically disintegrated by the blast. One woman seen in news footage sobbed as emergency personnel tended to her, a long, sharp piece of wood shaped like a drumstick, driven through the skin on her head as though simply tucked behind her left ear like a pencil. Even so, it could have been so much worse. July was usually when Norwegians vacationed, and it was a Friday afternoon. Far fewer people were, st- were still at work at the time the bomb went off. In fact, the Prime Minister wasn't even in his office at the time of the explosion. He was at his official residence, preparing a speech on the economy and full employment that he planned to give the next day at the Labor Party's youth camp on a small island which would soon become a part of the story. At one point, a victim missing a head led police to think that perhaps this was a suicide bomber. Al-Qaeda came up in conversation. The rumors and suspicion began to rumble across Oslo. One Muslim woman's car was stopped not not far from the blast, a stranger opening her door to tell her, ''You should get out of this country now.'' A Somali man was beaten. Much like in most disasters, the first few hours were confused, jumbled, and volatile. Police ultimately decided not to seal off the city, although they did encourage evacuation from the city center for for the protection of citizens. Within minutes of the blast, the witness reported seeing someone dressed as a police officer wearing a helmet with a face shield fleeing the scene, and they provided the license plate number of the retreating car. However, the report slipped through the cracks, just long enough for the suspect to slip away, headed to the next stop on his itinerary. The bomb, it turned out, was a distraction, not the main part of a singular plan but it wouldn't take long to get the name of the man who rented the car used for the bombing from its license plate. His name was Anders Breivik. Meanwhile, 24 miles northwest of Oslo in Tirifjorden lie the island of Utoya. Utoya is a small island, just 24 acres only half a mile wide and three-quarters of a mile long. Since 1950, the youth division of the Labour Party, the AUF, held an annual summer camp on Utoya in which young people came from all over to have fun while also learning about how to improve the world around them. One might follow up a discussion on a possible boycott of Israel for its treatment of Palestinians with the game of volleyball. You could decide between a hike, a swim, or a speaking engagement with a visiting dignitary, maybe even the Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg, who used to go there as a teenager as well as being scheduled to speak the next day. On the second day of camp that year, the Minister of Foreign Affairs came to the camp, speaking before the teens there as well as to a phalanx of reporters. As part of the visit, the minister donated to a fund the campers started to help Somalia and the Horn of Africa. But it wasn't just Norwegians on Utoya. That summer, there were visitors from many different countries. Uganda, Georgia, Lebanon, just to name a few. On the morning of July 22nd, almost 600 teenagers and adults awoke on Utoya, fully expecting yet another day of summer fun with an added political aspect. Of course, the day dawned miserable and rainy, and things changed, plans changed. The football tournament was canceled for the day. There was something to look forward to, however. Former Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland arrived on the island that morning to deliver a speech to the campers and provide advice and support to the young women who were there. She left the island that afternoon, and that would end up being a bit of a disappointment to the man who would arrive at the island not long after, who'd been looking at the camp schedule for the day on their website just that morning. He didn't particularly like her, and he probably was looking forward to getting to shoot her. Teenagers on the island soon received text and phone calls alerting them to news of an explosion in Oslo. Rumors began to circulate among campers. It was war, it was Al-Qaeda, it was terrorism. Campers were told to gather in the cafe building at 4.30 p.m. for a short meeting. At the meeting, the camp leaders informed those gathered there the horrible news that a bomb had exploded outside of the offices of the Prime Minister. Monica Bose, the island's hostess, recommended they call home and reassure their parents and families. They were on Utoya. They should be safe there. There was no reason to worry. In fact, they would light all the barbecues, and everybody would have some sausages. At 4.57pm, the ferry captain who provided one of the only methods to get on or off the island a boat ride, radioed camp. A police officer calling himself Martin Nilsen was riding to the camp at that very moment on his ferry. He carried a heavy case under the ferry. Inside was more guns, more ammo, although no one there knew as much. Campers dispersing from the meeting soon heard about the police officer and breathed a sigh of relief. Someone was coming to watch over them, maybe check for bombs. Some had darker thoughts maybe he was coming to tell a camper a loved one of theirs had died in the oslo explosion at five eighteen pm the ferry pulled up to the eastern dock at utoya the police officer on board several people were there to greet him including monica bose and security Ofer- officer trond burson one witness to his arrival noticed that along with his riot gear his rifle his pistol and what looked like a black wetsuit this police officer also wore an iPod. In his manifesto, the shooter wrote that he would put on his iPod as loud as possible, to suppress fear if needed. Campers soon heard several sharp cracks, and a few became angry. Was someone playing pranks? Maybe setting off fireworks? This wasn't the time for jokes. Some didn't pause to think, to rationalize. They heard the sounds, and they ran. It wasn't a prank or some idiot setting off fireworks. First, the new arrival shot Monique Bosé and Trond Bernson. Then he removed more weapons and ammo from his bag and began his reign of terror. The man casually walked down the road toward the café. He looked like a police officer. He carried a gun like a police officer. He wasn't a police officer. He arrived on the island with the rifle, the pistol, and over a thousand rounds of ammunition and when he was able to beckon a group of campers over to him, he fired. People ran for the trees. That seemed safe. Hide in the woods, among so many obstacles, that maybe you might be safe. People running through the woods felt the sting of wood chips as bullets struck nearby trees, just barely missing them. He headed for the tent area just below the cafe. Those still inside the cafe crouched inside, trembling in fear. As the man headed past, he fired a volley of gunshots at the cafe, terrifying everyone inside. One girl ran into the kitchen and hid in the fridge. He didn't find her, not even as screams began to rise in the cafe. Inside the main hall, which was connected to the cafe, a girl calling her father on her cell phone was shot as she screamed into the phone. The bullet's trajectory sent it through the phone, and the line went dead. A moment later, footsteps echoed through the kitchen terrified, the girl hiding in the fridge bolted out of the building. She made it. But she wasn't alone, and the shooter followed them all, winding through the tents and firing into them, striding into the woods and shooting at anyone he saw. But calm. Always very calm. Campers put their hands on their heads. As Sonia, the girl from the fridge, put it, better to be shot in your hands than your head. Some campers barricaded themselves into whatever building they could most notably the Skolistjua, or schoolhouse, then hid under beds or behind furniture. Anyone who got a chance texted messages of love or goodbyes to their families. It was all they could do. If they spoke, they might be heard. Those hiding from the gunmen couldn't afford that. Two Chechen teens, Mavsar and Rustam off, were able to hide 23 people from the gunmen in a cave-like depression in the rock faces near the water. Zemeyev even pulled three struggling swimmers from the water before they could drown and hid them in the cave as well. Desperate for escape, some campers dove for the water. The waters around Utoya were a relatively cold 57 degrees Fahrenheit at the time, but at that point it was either the freezing water or the gun-toning stranger in the woods. It didn't matter they had to sw- swim six hundred meters to make it to land. Many jumped in and made for the mainland. The shooter soon spotted them. The swimmers flinched at the splash of bullets striking the water near them. But they kept swimming. They had no choice. As they did, he screamed after them, You're going to die, Marxists! The same thing he yelled at others on the island as well. One of the camp leaders, Eskel Peterson made it to the ferry, an old military vessel armored against bullets, which could carry up to 60 people. He and the captain were able to make it away from the island, with only seven other people on board. Those still on the island, however, would have to find their own way to escape. While all of this was going on, people in Oslo were still preoccupied with the bomb. Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg gathered an operational center at his own home and spoke with both the opposition party and the King of Norway regarding the incident. In the midst of it all, the police department liaison officer received a phone call from his daughter at 5.37 p.m. She was on Utøya. Someone was murdering the campers. Please, somebody needed to come help them. There was a shooter on Utøya. At this point, Delta Force, Norwegian police commandos, were dispatched to help the local police deal with Utøya. But there was a hitch. They'd have to drive through rush hour traffic in the rain. The one police helicopter Norway owned was not suitable to carry troops. And when the helicopter pilot arrived to help, even though the crew was on holiday in July, he was told his services were not needed. People on the shore of the mainland could see swimmers struggling to make their escape from Utøya. One video recorded by an onlooker shows the swimmers, as well as that of more people attempting their own escape in a rowboat. Gunshots crack and echo in the background. Locals finally had enough. They started the engines on their own boats and headed out to pull terrified campers from the water. One such local was Marcel Gleff, a German tourist who was staying in the area. He immediately took his own boat out into the water, as soon as he heard the shots. He threw life vests out to the swimming campers, pulled whoever he could into his boat, keeping a close watch with his binoculars for the gunmen they could all hear prowling the island. After four or five trips, though, the police demanded he stop. The whole time, people driven to the shoreline of Utoya out of fear waited, trying to decide what to do, confused, scared, out of options. A half an hour into the shooting on Utoya, the local police department received a phone call from, according to him, Commander Anders Bering Breivik in the Norwegian anti-communist resistance movement. He said he was on Utoya and he wanted to surrender. He said he was calling the 112 emergency line from a cell phone, though not his own cell phone. From what he later told police, he'd been trying ten times. He wasn't the only one. All across the island, his victims had been trying to call the police, only to find themselves stymied by the clogged phone lines. The local police only had two open lines. When calls began to flood in, they opened more lines, but only then realized there were 40 calls in the queue. Not only were the lines busy, but the country's emergency infrastructure was in the process of switching from analog to digital. Delta Force couldn't get through to the local police because Delta Force's equipment had already been updated to digital, while theirs was still in analog. According to the police, the shooter himself only connected twice, at 6.01 and 6.26 p.m., and hung up both times. However, his manifesto suggested he might ask for a ransom and safe passage to give him extra time to kill more people. At 6.11 p.m., the Delta Force Commandos arrived and traveled across the fjord in a police boat to reach Utoya. Because the ferry had been taken by Eskel Pedersen and the other group and driven almost two miles away to safety, the police were unable to use it to get to the island. The ferry captain had decided to avoid going to the ferry's landing stage on the mainland due to the shooter's assur- assurance when he had first boarded the ferry, that two more policemen would be arriving shortly after he did. What if they were there? What if they were just more terrorists waiting for them as well? For safety's sake, they'd simply keep going down the fjord. The police also needed to wait because no one was really sure just how many shooters were on the island. Not even the teenagers hiding on Utoya knew precisely how many shooters there were, and couldn't confirm as much to the police they spoke to on their cell phones. As such, local police needed to wait for backup. They crammed far too many officers into the single inflatable police boat brought to the site, and the boat stalled. They eventually needed the assistance of locals in their own boats to offload from the inflatable and head to Utoya's shore. During all of this, bodies were piling up across the island, near the tents, in the woods, in the cafe, by a pump house near the shore. Finally, a helicopter flew overhead, but not from the police. The news cameras had arrived. Video captured the Delta Force officers swarming the island, bodies scattered across the beach, and a pale man in black standing among them, pointing a weapon at a man standing in the water. Survivors weren't sure what to do. They thought the first man was a police officer until he started shooting, It took the officers who were just arriving to start helping those who were injured before the survivors could be sure that the new arrivals were actually the police. The Delta Force officers quickly located and surrounded the suspect. The officers approached, ordering him to surrender. He did not respond. He did, however, continue to walk toward them. They thought perhaps he might be wearing explosives due to the bulkiness of his vest. They ordered him to stop again. He still refused to do what they said. Finally, as the police were ready to take down the man approaching them, he gave up. He had only been on the island almost an hour and a half, and had fired 186 shots. Unlike other killers like him, this shooter didn't kill himself to end his spray. Being silenced, even at his own hand, was not his plan. Eight people would die in the explosion in Oslo, while 69 people would die on the island of Utoya. Anutoya, 13 died in the cafe, 11 died on Lover's Path, one person died falling off a cliff while trying to escape, another drowned while attempting to swim away. The delay of the police arrival gave the shooter more time to kill. About 20 people died in the last 15 minutes of the assault on Utoya, while police were trying to reach the island from the mainland. 33 of the dead Anutoya Utoya were under the age of 18. The youngest to die was a 14-year-old girl, Sheridan Svevak Bonn. This was the deadliest attack in Norway since World War II. Hundreds were injured in both Oslo and Utøya. On the banks of the fjord surrounding Utøya, survivors sobbed as emergency personnel tended to them. Families and friends gathered in a nearby hotel to wait for news of whether or not their loved one had survived. One survivor in a BBC documentary described keeping the phone of a dead teen in his pocket for the rest of the day, feeling it vibrate every time the teen's mother called to try and reach her son. He was too afraid to answer and tell the boy's mother the truth. Buses transported survivors to the hotel, but slowly the buses began to dwindle and then just stopped altogether. The relatively small size of Norway meant that one in four Norwegians was found to have known someone who was affected by the attack. In fact, Trond Bernsen, the security officer shot first on the island, was the stepbrother of Crown Princess Metmaritz. The police had their suspect in custody, or, they first thought, suspects. In the aftermath of the events on Utoya, they apprehended Anzor Joykayev, another Chechen immigrant. The 17-year-old didn't react with as much raw emotion as the other survivors, and his haircut was different than that on his ID. Little things, maybe, but they seemed suspicious. So after watching his friends gun down around him, Jokhyev was stripped naked and placed in a cell close to the actual shooter, a cell he would stay in for 17 hours, while the police interrogated him and his family worried he had died as well. Finally, thankfully, he was released. There were also questions about whether or not the shooter worked alone. A couple of people thought they saw two different shooters on Utoya, and some thought they heard shots coming from the mainland. On the 24th of July, six people were arrested, suspected of having assisted in the crime, but they were all soon released. Only a few short hours after the attacks occurred, Ansar al-Jihad al-Alami, a group led by Abu Saliman al-Nasir, claimed responsibility. But, as in many of these cases, there was no factual basis to that claim. However, the actual culprit was still in their hands. He was arraigned on the 25th of July, at which point he was remanded into police custody. He would be there for eight weeks, the first four of which would be in solitary confinement. Alone, by himself, to think about what he'd done. Or, more likely, to privately gloat about it. Police quickly got their hands on the manifesto written by the man who would killed so many innocent people on July 22nd. The 1500 page manifesto, and the YouTube video which went along with it, detailed the killer's reasonings for his crimes, his Islamophobia, his hatred of immigrants, and his intolerance for those who did not feel the same way. According to the manifesto, he believed the Labor Party was determined to allow Muslims to take over the country. The bomb in Oslo struck the offices of a prime minister who was a Labour Party leader and the bullets on Utøya struck young, up-and-coming members of the Labour Party. His plan was to start a war, to spark a a conflict which would drive unwanted groups from his country. In the manifesto, he dedicated, dedicated himself to expelling Muslims from Norway. According to him, Muslims were the source of terrorism in Norway. Later, investigators would wonder how one person could pull all of this off. For example, how could one man obtain so much fertilizer when it was a known component in bomb-making materials? Felix Kjopit, the retail company who sold the fertilizer to the shooter, determined quite simply that no law said an agricultural business couldn't buy all the fer- fertilizer it wanted to, and because it was an agricultural company, what was so suspicious about them ordering fertilizer? After the attacks, police would find between 1,000 and 1,500 kilograms of fertilizer still stored in the barn in Omont. They made a reconstruction of the bomb with an equivalent amount of the fertilizer. Using this, they were able to conclude that the original bomb had been 950 kilograms, or almost 2,100 pounds. A bomb much the same size had been used in the attack on Bali in 2002 which exploded in an area full of nightclubs populated by tourists and killed 202 people. Given the amount of fertilizer left on the property, the shooter could have easily built a second bomb. Two weeks after the events on Utoya, the authorities brought the shooter back to the island to detail precisely what he had done that day. An image from afar showed him on the dock, apparently showing the police how he fired at his victims. In it, he holds an imaginary rifle, pointed to the right of the dock. A psychiatric assessment released a few months after the massacre stated the shooter had paranoid schizophrenia. Experts reviewed and approved the report, but a second report by a prison psychologist judged him mentally well, but simply extreme. As psychologist Randy Rosenfist pointed out in a BBC documentary, many people have racist ideologies like the shooter, but that doesn't make them mentally ill. Another report commissioned by the courts established that the initial report was was correct. He was perfectly sane. He... incorrect. He was perfectly sane. He hadn't exhibited a single symptom of schizophrenia in the months prior to the attacks. According to his lawyer, the new finding made his client very happy. Good. He wasn't mentally ill. He knew it, and he didn't want anybody else to think that he was. The terrorist trial took place from April 16th to June 22nd of 2012. He wanted the trial open. His request was denied. He wanted to wear a uniform of his own design. Again, denied. During the trial, he admitted he'd set up the Oslo bomb and committed the Utoya massacre. But as he said it, his actions were, quote, atrocious but necessary. The terrorist was convicted on August 24th, 2012, and sentenced to 21 years in prison, the longest sentence currently held by a Norwegian pr- prisoner. The conviction sounds mild considering all he'd done, but at the expiration of that sentence, it can be, and more than likely will be, extended indefinitely in five year increments if he's still considered a threat. Three days after the attacks, the Rose Rally flowed through Oslo's streets thousands of Norwegians standing against the Islamophobia and xenophobia which spawned the shooter's actions. Eight months later, the authorities, including the Prime Minister, apologized for the slow response to the attack on Utøya. In August of 2012, the Jorv report would confirm that Norwegian police could have stopped the bombing in Oslo from happening in the first place, and could also have cut the Utøya shooting much shorter than they had. Several memorials have been established. One, a large silver ring engraved with the names of those lost in the Utoya attacks, hangs suspended from wires in the trees on the island. Another is a learning center on the island, designed by architect Erlend Blackstad Hafner, which enshrines the original café inside it. The learning center is surrounded by a perimeter of 495 wooden slats, one for every survivor, while the inner layer is held up by 69 columns, one for every life lost on the island. What's left of the cafe is kept in the same condition inside the learning center as it was following the attacks. Bullet holes still in the walls, some windows still open to allow for escape. One memorial to those lost in the attacks, however, did not receive quite the same positive response. The memorial designed by swedish artist jonas Dahlberg, would have sliced away a strip of land connecting a small area jutting out of the coastline near the village of sorbrotten not far from utoya to get a visual of what the planned memorial would have done just imagine that gif you see online every once in a while in which bugs bunny slices off the state of florida from the map of the united states now imagine he did it halfway down florida's midsection in a horizontal strip with a 3.5-meter gap left between the two pieces of land and no way to simply walk across to the other side. In Dahlberg's design, both sides of the cut would end up with flat, parallel stone walls. Visitors would walk along a pathway into a tunnel in the mainland side. They would then end up at a cutaway that faced the opposite side of the slice in the land, with the victim's names engraved on the far wall just out of reach. However, locals fought against it. It meant not only losing access to the land on the severed end, but was also generally agreed among them to be a bit of an eyesore. Most recently, a new location near Utoya has been proposed for the memorial, although it remains to be seen if the memorial will have smooth sailing there either. In March of 2013, Ventia Bering passed away due to complications from cancer. A week beforehand, she and her son shared a last visit, at which he was allowed to move from behind the partition in the visitor's room to give her a hug. He was not, however, allowed to attend her funeral. Since his incarceration, he has appealed his solitary confinement on the grounds that isolating him from other people is inhumane and violates the European Convention of Human Rights. A lower court ruled that the frequent strip searches and solitary confinement he dealt with were a violation. However, an appeals court ruled against him. He still plans to appeal the decision to Norway's Supreme Court and then to the European Court of Human Rights if necessary. After the initial ruling, he wrote a note to his guards apologizing for the whole thing. He didn't want them to think he was being critical of them. Either way, he spends his days alone in a three-room cell with television, newspapers, and a gym for exercise. Even with the exercise equipment, photos show he's clearly lost bulk, presumably due to not taking steroids anymore. Still, he complains. His coffee is too cold, jail food is, quote, worse than waterboarding. He feels bad in jail, though. It seems not about what he's done, just about being in jail at all. But he is keeping busy. He's currently taking college courses in international relations. Before I start talking about personal stuff and my thoughts and all that, I did want to say that I think I said that the rifle that he bought cost $2,000 American, and I actually think it was $200, and I just put the wrong number down uh, just to get that out of the way. Um, But... In terms of um, other things that I wanted to talk about, there are so many things that I wanted to talk about. There was a lot of information to dig through and to narrow down and to kind of delete and edit. There's a lot of editing involved in doing the research for this particular episode. There's so much that I wanted to throw in. And when you look at all of this stuff that's, available on this particular subject there is so much i could have done i could have done a three hour episode easily and i figured i was going to do a three hour episode but what i ended up doing was just kind of cutting down and throwing out all the fat and all of the excess information and just kind of boiling it down to what i thought was was um necessary in this particular episode one thing that i didn't do that i had thought about doing was seeing if i could find the manifesto I'm sure I could, I, I, I'm i sure it's around somewhere, um, but I wasn't sure that I would be able to read it, not just because it was 1500 pages, but because so much of what I was reading was in it was very reminiscent of things that we're hearing about in the news. And so I wasn't sure that I could tolerate listening to that, you know, reading that and then turning around and listening to the news. and. Most of the things you read about, most of the books that you read about in regards to this, mention a great deal of what's in it and a great deal of the content. So you really don't have to read it. and I'm sure a lot of it is sort of excessive and repetitive anyway. The things that you hear about it that he did kind of copy a lot from uh, people like the Unabomber and, and things like that, I don't think it's really necessary to to read something like that, especially considering it's fifteen thousand pages. The, the The stand isn't even 15, 15, uh, 1,500 pages. Excuse me. The stand isn't even fifteen hundred pages, and I love that book. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it, there's so much about it that that is appalling that you kind of don't want to read it. And even the excerpts that I've read are just it's it's just upsetting to to think that somebody can speak that way about anybody else and what's most upsetting about it is when you read about people who had gotten the manuscript in the mail or you see people who'd gotten the manuscript in the mail in one documentary i had seen a, a man who was interviewed who had had it emailed to him on the morning of the massacre and he you know, he sort of denounces uh, the shooter doing what he did, the bomb and the shootings. But in terms of saying that Muslims were going to take over Europe and he had to start a big war to kick them out. Oh, he was on board with that. It was just the violence that he was against, at least the way that he seemed to have executed it. And it's its really upsetting to see stuff like that because it just reminds you that they're there who say about about other people and about just just people who have done nothing wrong except for be a member of a religion that is different and you know speaking as an atheist it's just um you know there there are bad people in every group i can easily say that as an atheist because i know there are atheists out there who are just absolute jerks um i try not to be Nobody's 100% perfect, but I I go through life trying to to be um, as accepting as humanly possible, and there are going to be moments where you know that's going to be tested, and I am not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. But if I can learn to apologize and learn to say okay you know, that's not true, that's, that's a stereotype, that's wrong, you know, if I can accept that with myself, it it kind of, you know, even when I make a mistake and say, okay, I did something wrong, it, it always kind of gets frustrating seeing other people who can't do the same thing. And that, like I said, it's not to say I'm perfect or that I, you know, everybody makes mistakes, everybody says the wrong thing, everybody has something that they do that is wrong and whether or not that is something that they can apologize for or that they can amend or something that they can fix, it's up to them. In certain cases, you're going to have somebody like the shooter who doesn't seem to have any sort of remorse for what he did nothing that I have read seems to indicate that he has any remorse whatsoever. He seems to have more remorse for the fact that he was suing because he didn't want to be in solitary confinement anymore and he thought it was an invasion of his human rights and he felt remorseful to the guards than he does for the people that he shot and that he blew up. Those sorts of things are terrifically frustrating. Um... And particularly because you know that if it was, it's not just him, that there are other people like that in the world. And there is a, a part of, um, a part of me that, that, um, found researching this really hard because I try to be as objective as possible when doing these episodes. It doesn't always work. It almost never works, but, um, I I try to be as objective as possible, but I'm not going to pretend that I don't lean the same way as the Labor Party and the same way. I don't tend to think that a lot of what they were doing was, you know, uh, is exactly the sort of thing that a lot of the same positions that I take. And so reading this man who is just vile and expressing all of these thoughts that I just are are just abhorrent to me. And then, how he turned around and killed people who feel the same way that I do. It, it's, it's, it was just more upsetting. And I think that may be part too of why it took so long to do this episode is that it's seeing people who were young, who wanted to make the world a better place, who were making sure to do that, not just to, to, uh, to do it in small ways, but in big ways, you know, there's a lot of things that are, Going around in the media now, particularly considering that Teen Vogue is doing a lot of the investigative journalism that a, a lot of people in the media have just seemed to have given up on. And you have a magazine like Teen Vogue that got a new editor and suddenly got this, uh, got this attention for bringing out all of these stories that are more hard hitting than you're seeing in other magazines, and. There are people who are dismissive of it and say, you know, it's Teen Vogue. Oh, my, you know, why would Teen Vogue be doing this? Why won't they go back to fashion? And it's very dismissive of just how into uh, social causes and, and politics teenage girls can really be, you know, sort of like, oh, well, teenage girls, they don't do this sort of thing. And I can remember being a teenage girl. I can remember being interested in politics and supporting certain, you know, political uh, opinions and certain politicians and certain stripes of, of you know, um, all, all kinds of different things. I can remember being interested in the news and current events and what we were doing as, as a country to help other people. And I, I can remember being that way. And I'm 40 now, almost give or take a few months. Uh, So it's it's not a surprise that teenage girls might be interested in making the world a better place. The same goes for the teenagers on Utoya. You have all of these teenagers and all of these young people who really wanted to do big things. They wanted to run for local government, which is how you make it into state government and federal governments, particularly in this country. You start small and you work your way up. Uh, Unless you just never had a a job in politics a day in your life and suddenly you're president. But anyway, um, (laughs) but these are these are people who really wanted to make the world a better place. Every time you see interviews about uh, with the survivors and with people who were going to Utoya that summer, they are very well spoken, very intelligent and very thoughtful and caring all of these people are extraordinarily caring they care about people in other countries they want to know about you know what's going on in Somalia what's going on in Israel what's going on in Afghanistan all of these different places they talk about and how they want to help and how they want to help you know women and the LGBT community and all of these different groups and their their hearts are so big there's so many people who were on Utoya that day, and who are in these in these interviews and talking about all of the things that brought them to Utoya in the first place, and they're all they're all really good people. You know, they're not all perfect people though. They're not admitting. They're not saying that they're perfect. They're not claiming to be perfect. They're just expressing. Uh, you know the desire to help other people, the desire to make the world a better place. And so many of them are very, you know, were very traumatized by what happened, obviously. But you have people who are very traumatized because they didn't get a chance to help others. Or um, some of the people who were on the ferry that went away, Uh, felt guilty later on. They were, you know, you try to reason with yourself, well, you know, we have to get away from the island. We can't go back. We might all get killed. You know, whoever we can save, we can save. And, but at the same time, you have to deal with that survivor's guilt. And so you have all of these people who, they just have the biggest hearts. They really do. And to have someone like this man show up on the island and ruin that, in, in a way is ruin that place that so badly that they haven't gone back really yet <clears throat> excuse me they haven't gone started the camp back yet as far as I could tell um, they're trying to uh, It's really hard it's it's a it's a place where it's very difficult to go back to and spend time on because if you are someone who spent time on it before, now you have all these thoughts and all these memories and a lot of people are trying to make it better. You have the memorial in the woods, you have the learning center. The learning center is, I tweeted about this earlier today, but it's a really beautiful memorial to that. It is, the outside of the building is, is this, it's just these wood, uh, poles, these wood slats that are sticking up in a row all the way around the building uh there are the the outside of the frame is wood and on the inside you have the cafe and it is saved and and there's you can see there's a window open and there's bullet holes in the wall but there it's it's a memorial site it's somewhere where you can go and learn about what happened that day and uh and mourn the people who died on the island in particular the 13 who died in the cafe itself and there are also other buildings that they erected on the on the island now there's a library and there's a speaking uh, hall and the library i i love the library the it's beautiful it's it's uh bare wood with uh, kind of a just kind of a, like a gum resin or something on it but it's it's just bare wood beautiful open spaces um, with uh, lots of seating and it's just it's a really gorgeous memorial to the people who died and i feel like looking at those photos like they would want people to come back they would want people to remember them by bringing back everything good that was happening on utoya at the time all of these uh, all of these these ideas that were being fostered and all of this uh, these good deeds that were being encouraged all of this help that they wanted to to uh, execute for uh, the world around them, and the best way to fight that is to go back and start going to camp again. And so, I feel like that's a it's a good start. It's it it starts to it's starting to feel like from the news stories that I've been reading and 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 that sort of thing that it's really likely that eventually these the they're going to go back, and hopefully maybe this summer. I really didn't see any sort of um, uh, indication one way or another, any sort of firm uh, plans for that, but I, I hope they go back. I, I, I can't think of anybody else who, who wouldn't hope that they go back. I mean, it's very difficult, obviously. It's been five years. I'm not sure how many of the same people would go back, but you have all of these people who are very engaged and very focused on making the world a better place. and. This was their haven, and I can only hope that they are able to go back and and make it a haven once again. As for the terrorist himself, I I, I always have a tough time reading about uh, the sentence that he got, and the reasoning is understandable. They don't give these long sentences in in Norway. Uh, the reason that I understand it is because it gives them something to look forward to. It gives them, you know, a reason to, uh, to express remorse for what they've done, to move forward, to become better people. This is not somebody I would let out of jail ever. He doesn't seem to be, Any anywhere near feeling remorseful. He is very um, self-centered. He doesn't seem to to care about what he did or or how many people he hurt. Um, And I feel like when they start doing those rounds of five years, five years more, five years more, five years more, they're just going to keep doing that until he passes away. I don't doubt that for an instant. At the same time, what I'm afraid of is that every five years, these people who suffered at his hands, these people who lost family at his hands, are going to have to deal with having this dredged up all over again. It's a, it's it's like with, you know, people like Charlie Manson. Every so often he has to come up for parole, and every so often relatives of the, the people who died, um, I believe Sharon Tate's sister was uh, going, I'm not sure if she's still going to all of these uh, parole uh, hearings for the different Manson family members. Uh, you have to go constantly, and it just drags up all, the, drags up, dredges up all these old memories, and so that's my concern with that that whole thing is that people who were suffering already who are constantly suffering who had their family members die in such horrible ways are gonna have to deal with this every five years for the rest of their life and that's my concern i really don't care about him Uh, i don't support the death penalty at all and i don't support it in his case but he can stay the rest of his life in jail for all i care (laughs) um in terms of the the podcast itself uh, next episode I have have two more Kickstarter episodes to do Um, I will hopefully get them done in the next couple of weeks and then it's on to stuff uh, new stuff, different stuff Uh, so we'll see how that goes Um, I still have to pick new stuff that comes after those Uh, I've completely forgotten how to pick disasters I wasn't told to do (laughs) Um, but uh, with all of that taken care of. Uh, I really hope that, uh, that the people who suffered because of this awful, awful man uh, um, have peace in the future uh, as much as they can, considering what they have to look forward to, um, the memories that they still hold on to, that sort of thing. Um, but until next time, stay safe bye